0: This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. Hey, today we're continuing a series of messages that we've called Witness Tell Your Story. And so we're exploring conversion stories in the New Testament of people who were living one way, encountered Jesus, and then lived a completely different way. And what we find in almost every single one of these stories is when Jesus changes your life. He often intends for you to share that same good news with people who live like you used to live. That It's not this idea of I follow Jesus and I completely abandon every relationship and turn my back on everyone. But I now live as a son or daughter of God and I use my story to connect to them and invite them to experience the same life change that I found. And so we, we've had some, some fun and explored some really powerful stories. Last week we talked about how Jesus saves passionate people. Um, today, though, it's, it's probably, honestly, the least fun of the stories we're going to look at. Because today we're going to talk about self-righteous people. Um, which is probably not a, a name any of us would gladly wear. Like nobody's ordering the I am self-righteous t-shirt uh, to, to wear around town. Now, if you're unfamiliar with what that means, to be self-righteous is basically to believe the idea that through your own effort, through your own rule-keeping, through how good you think you can be, you can earn your place in God's kingdom. You can, through, because you, you're just so good at being good that he's going to give you every kind of temporary thing you want and also give you eternal rewards as well. To be self-righteous is to believe that you don't actually need God to follow him, but you can do it through your own strength, through your own effort, through your own abilities. That's not something many of us would say, yes, that's who I am. And and yet, if we're honest, and and as we kind of talk through self-righteousness, today we'll see that there is some appeal to it, and we kind of keep falling back into that trap. Um, and, and so you really got to think about well, well, what is it there that, that sucks us in? So, as I was thinking about this the, the past couple of weeks, the thought that kept coming to mind was my, my kids, they frequently introduce me to new things. I mean, all kinds of new stuff. Um, one of the things they've introduced me to in the last couple of months are YouTube channels of people detailing cars. Has anybody watched any of these? they are a fascinating way to waste a lot of time. Like, I mean, they are just productivity killers. They are the classic. But so my kids, it, like most of the things my kids watch, it started with me making fun of them for watching it. And so I would, I would walk through the room of, I can't believe you'd waste your time with that. And then I noticed I'd, I just like stood behind the couch and still telling them like, guys, this is really dumb. I can't believe you're and i 'd just stop and i 'd be completely locked in on it and and so it 's not they weren 't watching people detailing like nice cars. it was people detailing just absolute dumpster fire cars right where where people will bring them in, so sometimes they buy them at auction, but more often than not it 's somebody driving in a car. That they have destroyed almost to the point that that it can't be recognized. And and so, a lot of these guys, when they start cleaning it, the first thing they do is they slap on the the thick rubber gloves. Um, And then they start pulling stuff out of the trunk and out of the, one of the ones we watched was a minivan. Uh, that a mom and her, I mean, it looked like there had been an army of toddlers living in there unsupervised for about 10 years. Just, I mean, the the trash was like my knee high in the back. I think they just crawled on the top of it to get to their seats. And so this guy begins the process of cleaning it. And so obviously they start with the the trash removal and they're pulling things out and they're describing how it smells and all of these types of things. And then they finally get down to what you think is the carpet, Um, but there's actually still a thick layer of stuff. So they'll vacuum what they can and then they shampoo what they can't and then they steam some other things and then they tell you the products they're using and all the elbow grease that goes into it and you're getting like the elapsed timer telling you how long this has taken and then they give you like the, the, the shot at the end where they pour out the dirty water of all of the things that they've sucked out and it looks worse than any like stagnant pond you've ever seen in your life and then they start steaming the air vents and they start buffing the outside and, and at the end of it, it, it's went from looking like Like a dumpster on wheels to something you actually would be okay to get inside of. And and it's just it's basically following the same formula of every DIY show that you've ever watched of here's something that was broke, that was old, that was gross, here's what we did to make it better, and here's the end result and how nice it looks now. And in that process, whether it's detailing cars, rehabbing homes, uh, any other thing in life, there is something inside of all of us that we love the idea of we can take something broken and through our own effort and ingenuity, we can make it like new again. And at its core, that is the appeal of being self-righteous. That we recognize there are things broken in us, there are things broken in the world, and so if I can just be disciplined, if I can just be good enough, then I, through my own effort, can be acceptable to God and can contribute to the health of the world around me. And regardless of if you grew up in a a Christian church or in some other religion or with no religion at all, most of us somewhere along the way adopt the idea that good people are spiritual people and spiritual people are good people. And so what we think is, well, if I want to be good, I need to be spiritual. If I'm going to be spiritual, then I need to be good. And Jesus comes to address all of these things, but without Jesus, all we're really left with is the pursuit of rules and regulations to try to make ourselves good. And so you see this in the church where Jesus comes and reveals himself as the way, the truth, and the life, the fulfillment of the law, and says no one comes to the Father except through him. And we look at him and we say, that sounds awesome, but I think I'll try rules instead. I'm just going gonna, gonna to do the right things, I'm going to say the right things, I'm going to go to the right places, I'm not going to do all of the other things, and I will just be good enough that Jesus will have to love me. Outside of the Christian faith, the major religions of the world follow this model as well. Of, we're just going to give you a list of rules, and if you do these things often enough and long enough, you will receive temporary reward, and in some cases, eternal reward as well. There's something in the human heart that wants to prove we're good enough. And for some of us, as we go down this self-righteous path, what we discover is we actually are good at keeping rules. And how many of you would say, "I, I love a good set of rules? Like there's nothing. If you're playing a board game with family and friends, the first thing you do is read the rules. Anybody? Yeah. Yeah. How many of you, your family or friends will be playing a board game and you'll come in to read the rules to make sure they're doing it correctly? Yeah, that's, that's its own, like, you need counseling for that. You know, just they're having fun. Leave them alone, okay? Uh, but, but it's just, there's something in this. And so even, like, I am not, I'm not a, a huge rule person. I don't love them. I, you know, I met with my principal a lot growing up to discuss my aversion to some rules. Uh, my parents tried to spank that out of me at different times. But yet, when it comes to following Jesus, I love a good set of rules still. Like I love clearly defined lines of if I do this, Jesus loves me more. If I do that, I'm better than everyone else around me, right? And so self-righteousness, it appeals to us in different ways. It appeals to us as it adds order and structure to my life. Others of us, it appeals from a sense of it's a scorecard where I know how well I'm doing compared to everyone else. I'm doing better at following the rules than they are. For some of us, we think it's the way that we ensure we're going to receive God's best and God's blessing. We're just going to do all the right things all the time. You might have even grown up in churches where self-righteousness became a little more institutionalized and, and came off as legalism. With this idea of, hey, if you're really a follower of Jesus, here are the seven things you do and here's the 7,000 things you don't do. Because right? the don'ts are always much longer and more detailed than the do's. And so you, you kind of were bought into this idea of To be a spiritual person, to be a Christian is to be good, but I have to be good through my own effort. I have to be good through my own abilities. I have to be good through my own rule keeping. And that idea of self-righteousness never leads us into authentic experiences of life. It never leads us into a story that will transform the lives of others when we tell them. In fact, it leads us typically to some pretty dark, lonely, and frustrating places because everybody who pursues a path of earning their righteousness through their own effort eventually realizes they cannot do it. They get frustrated. They get angry. They begin to see, well, I'm following all the rules and no one else is, and they're prospering while I'm suffering. And it just becomes a, a very difficult experience. And, and so if you're here this morning and you resonate with that idea of, you know what, I think I do have some self-righteous tendencies. I think whether it's personal self-righteousness or more institutional legalism, they're kind of, you know, they're, they're basically ugly cousins. Like neither one of them is that great. They're just different forms of the same thing. But, but what I want to encourage you with today is if you find yourself in that space, spot, you're not isolated and you're not alone, but actually you're in some pretty good company. The Apostle Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament, was one of the most self-righteous people that has ever walked the earth. He was better at being good than you or I ever will be. I mean, if you just think for a moment of the most conservative, demanding parents that you have ever seen in your life— The Apostle Paul would have been their ideal child. He never found a rule he didn't want to follow. He never found a rule breaker he didn't want to punish. He didn't just want to follow the laws. He wanted to follow all the expansions of the law as well down to the letter. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul tells us about who he was before he became a follower of Christ. He says, If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. And we don't have time to get into the details of every single thing there that Paul says, but let's just hit a couple of those. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, basically what he's saying is, if someone else thinks that they are self-righteous, I am more self-righteous. Confidence in the flesh is a belief that in me resides the ability to do all that God requires of me. And Paul says, I nailed it. I was born into the right place. I was born into the right people group. I can trace back my lineage into the promised and chosen people of God. But more than that, I have taken my place even deeper in the people. I've become a Pharisee, one who is zealous for the law. My zeal, though, isn't just restricted to keeping the law, but he says persecuting the church. I'm going to actively work against those who aren't as zealous as I am. Paul's self-righteousness was more passionate than any of our self-righteousness. And then he says, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. I don't know about you, but I can pretty confidently say there is not a single area of my life where I can say I've ever been faultless. Where I have nailed it with absolute perfection all of the time. And yet that is what Paul tells us when it comes to obeying the letter of the law he was faultless. Now, the Old Testament law had the Old Testament had over 600 laws. By the time of Paul, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the various rabbis over the centuries had expanded on each of these laws. So where there were now thousands of applications for what it meant to obey the law. So for a man like Paul, he's saying, I'm faultless, not just in that I observe the Sabbath, but in that I never walk farther than is prescribed or allowed on the Sabbath. Not just that I give my money as a tithe, but I give the exact percentage down to the smallest source of income in my house. Paul was the most annoying, detailed friend you could possibly imagine. No matter how good you thought you were, he could always one-up you with something better. He says he was faultless. And yet he does all of that... Only to encounter Jesus and have his whole world turned upside down. Which is why we begin to understand when, when Paul first encounters Jesus, it doesn't go well. Paul's conversion story begins with a rejection of Jesus. So, so let's kind of go back. Paul says he's a Pharisee. Right? So Pharisees are part of the leading religious community at the time. It's the Pharisees who are most active in their opposition to Jesus. Paul has been taught by influential Pharisees. He's a rising star in their ranks. He is brilliant. He is zealous. He is disciplined. It is likely that Paul was friends with the people and mentored by the men who gathered to condemn Jesus to death on Good Friday. Paul was probably aware, if not a participant, in their scheming and plotting in the weeks, months, and years leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. As a rising star in the pharisee in the circles of the pharisees Paul would have been aware of the threat that Jesus posed because Jesus went around teaching I have not come to abolish the law I've come to fulfill it but for somebody like Paul those are the same thing if people aren't obeying all the law, they might, as not, they might as well not obey any of it. And Jesus comes and says, hey, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And all of these were deeply, deeply offensive to someone like Paul. To the point where he begins to actively persecute the early church. Now, we're never given a story in the New Testament of, did Jesus and Paul have an interaction before the crucifixion of Jesus? Was Paul gathered in the crowd at some point, witnessing the miracles, listening to the teaching? When the Pharisees came with questions, was Paul there with them? We don't know, but what we can be pretty confident of is whether he was there or not, he shared the same mindset, he shared the same perspective, and his zeal for the law led him to become one of the first persecutors of the church. As we flip over to Acts chapter 9, we pick up the story of Paul before he encounters Jesus. In verse 1, it's again before his conversion, he's still known as Saul. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So again, when Jesus shows up in Paul's world, Paul's first response is to reject him. He doesn't want anything to do with him. Paul is passionate about the law. Jesus comes to fulfill the law, which Paul sees as a rejection of the law. So he rejects Jesus and he rejects anyone who associates with Jesus. It's one of the examples we see in scripture where self-righteousness will always distort your view of reality. Paul had come to worship the law more than he worshiped the God who gave the law. He worshiped the law more than he worshiped the purpose of the law, which was to reveal that we could never keep it on our own, and we were in desperate need of a Savior who could fulfill it for us. But Paul becomes so devoted to the law, so certain of his own righteousness, so proud of his own effort, that when the Son of God came, his vision was blurred to the point he couldn't even recognize him. More than that, Paul decides this new movement must be eliminated. The first Christian martyr, his story is told just a a chapter or two earlier in the book of Acts. His name is Stephen. He's preaching the gospel. He's rejected by the religious leaders. They drag him out. They stone him and they kill him. And in the story, it says that those who stoned Stephen laid their coats at the, the feet of a man named Saul who was there giving his approval. See, Saul, he wasn't just saying, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. He was actively participating in the destruction of the church that Jesus had started, which was active participation in an attempt to destroy Jesus. Self-righteousness always twists our vision in this way. It twists our view of the world. It makes us do things that we said we would never do. In Paul's case, it continues by Acts chapter 9. It says, now Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the church and the Lord's disciples. Again, he is actively opposed. He's saying, I want to go here. I want to go there. He gets letters from the religious leaders to go to the city of Damascus to knock down doors and drag people out who follow Jesus and throw them into prison. Paul's self-righteousness, his zeal has turned him into an angry and violent man. It's made him unrighteously self-righteous. And we still see this impact of self-righteousness in our world. Where people, because of their devotion either to what they think is following Jesus or what they think is following the rules of their own religion, it isolates them, it separates them from others, but it also somehow embeds a hatred of those who are not exactly like them and don't agree perfectly with them. And then we begin to act in immoral ways to try to uphold our moral standards. Paul's love for the law was causing him to try to kill those that he thought were breaking it. You see this in churches. You see this in families. You see this in other religions of the world. Where when we fall in love with our own self-righteousness, we fall in love with ourselves and we begin to hate everyone else who's different or not as good as we are. It creates division, it creates isolation, it creates loneliness, it it creates all sorts of unrighteous behaviors. We see it in Paul, and if we're honest, we've probably seen it in ourselves. If you give in to the temptation of self-righteousness, what you've noticed in your life is it never leads you into an experience of the fruit of the Spirit. Being self-righteous has never made anyone more loving. It's never made anyone kind. It's never made anyone patient. It's never given anyone self-control. Self-righteousness always makes your heart grow cold. It always makes your heart grow hard. It always makes you look for enemies around every corner and behind every bush. It makes you advocate for the destruction of everyone who's different from you. If we want to make it a, a little more personal, we would say, if, if you've recognized self-righteousness in your life, you can look at the distance it's created in your marriage. Or maybe you married someone who's just like you and you're like, no, we love it. We follow all the rules together and we hate everyone else. Our favorite pastime is to talk about how much better we are than a whole world. Like we go to a home group and then we go home. We're like, we are really nailing it. And those people are all screw ups, right? And, and you might have that view and you, but here's what I promise you. It's creating distance between you and your kids. Because self-righteous parents are never loving, they're never kind, they're never gracious, they're never merciful. They are hard, they're angry, they're judgmental, they create wedges in families. If you're part of a church where you're convinced we're the only 50 people in the world who really have ever understood the gospel. Right? It doesn't make you a city on a hill, a light shining in the darkness. It makes you a small little judgmental circle of people with closed doors, closed hearts, and closed minds. Self-righteousness is not the way of Jesus. And self-righteousness never leads to experiences of life. And so if, if you, like me, recognize there are parts of your heart that tend to fall into self-righteous patterns and behaviors there are self-righteous thought patterns that that continue to kind of creep up and pop up. It's not that you just say, well, this is just who I am, but you are going to actively oppose these things because you know they lead you down a path that leads away from Jesus. But again, the the good news is Jesus loves self-righteous people, right? We would have expected him to see a man like Saul There, when Stephen is stoned, persecuting the church, trying to drag men and women into prison. And what we would have expected is Jesus to look at a man like Saul and say, I'll take care of this myself. I will end this threat. And have you ever stopped to think that while Saul is on his journey to Damascus, there's most likely a group of believers in Jerusalem and perhaps a group of believers in Damascus who were actively praying for the failure of Saul. They're asking the Lord to protect them from him. Some of them are probably praying some pretty direct prayers of, Lord, will you just wipe him off the face of the earth? Right? They're going back to some of those Davidic Psalms of, Lord, smite my enemies, make him childless, all of these types of things. They don't want anything to do with him. And what we would expect Jesus to do is keep a man like Saul at an arm's length. Because he's dangerous, because he's violent, because he's angry, because he's so zealous it causes him to overreact again and again and again. And yet as you keep reading in Acts chapter 9, what you see is not only does Jesus not reject Saul, but he welcomes him in. And he gives the persecutor the opportunity to become the preacher. He gives the one who is causing harm the opportunity to become the one who brings healing. As you keep reading Acts chapter 9, you skip down a couple verses to verse 3, and it says, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. When we say Jesus loves self-righteous people, it doesn't mean that he lets them stay self-righteous people. But for Paul, he's had encounters with Jesus previously. He's encountered the church. He's heard the gospel. He has not only resisted it, he's been violently opposed to it. And in response to that, Jesus loves him enough to knock him down and get his attention. And if you've been down the self-righteous path yourself, you know that self righteous people are usually pretty stubborn people, pretty hard headed people. And so, if Jesus is going to get the attention of a self righteous person like Paul, it makes sense that he does it in the way that he does. He doesn't wait till Saul gets to Damascus and sends some winsome Christian over to win over Paul with his arguments. He doesn't send some kind of Mr. Rogers feel good guy along the road of, hey, Saul, let me tell you how what you're doing is wrong. No, what does he do? He says, "Okay, if you're that zealous, if you're that convinced that you're right, I'm going to knock you on the ground. I'm going to blind your eyes and I'm going to speak to you from heaven. And if you've ever encountered someone who was formerly a self-righteous person, they can often tell you about some of these moments when God spoke directly and powerfully to them to reveal the path you're on is not leading to life. They're not always easy conversations. They're not always fun conversations. For Saul, he's knocked on the ground. He's blind. He hears a voice. He doesn't even know who it is. But as soon as Jesus reveals himself and he says, I'm Jesus, I'm the one you've been persecuting, now get up and go into town. Paul gets up and he lets someone help him and he goes into town. And so if you go down that path of self-righteousness and you come to the point where Jesus kind of grabs you and shakes you and gets your attention. Maybe it's when your marriage ends because you are relentlessly demanding and they just can't take it anymore. Maybe it's when your kids won't speak to you anymore. Maybe it's when you got kicked out of the church that you thought you were following all the rules. At some point along the way, Jesus loves every self-righteous person enough to let them come to the end of themselves and see him as their Savior. And in that space, you have two options. You can lay on the ground with your feelings hurt, or you can get up and walk on the path Jesus is laying out for you. I mean, Saul could have just said, Lord, I I, I mean, sorry, but I'm good. I just want to stay here. I just want to go back to my life. I mean, he could have told his companions, take me back to Jerusalem. But he had encountered Jesus, and even though it meant his whole world was about to be turned upside down, he was willing to submit to him. See, Jesus loves self-righteous people, but he loves us so much he won't let us stay that way. He's going to call us out. He's going to convict us. He's going to challenge us. He's going to let all of these these efforts at at self-righteousness, all of these efforts at earning God's favor, he's going to let it all crumble to nothing. And in the ashes and in the dust, he's going to say, if you're ready, let's walk this way. And then you have a choice. You can get up and you can begin to follow him. You can begin to do the things he's calling you to do. And as you do that, he will restore those relationships. He will renew your joy. He will help you find peace and joy and hope and meaning in life. But it requires that you don't sit there in the dust, but you get up and you follow him on the path that he has. This is what Saul does. He gets up, he goes into Damascus. He just waits because that's all that Jesus told him to do. And then Jesus speaks to another believer in town, a man named Ananias, and he says, go over here, there's a man named Saul, I need you to pray for him because he's going to be used by me for my kingdom. So Ananias goes over, he prays for Saul, it says that something like scales fall from Saul's eyes, he begins to see, he begins to learn more about who Jesus is, and then immediately he begins to go to the synagogue and teach others about what he has discovered, Acts chapter 9, you skip down to verse 20. It says at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoner to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. See, Jesus loves self-righteous people. Jesus also has a plan for self-righteous people. And his plan for Paul was not to make him a completely different person, but it was to redeem every part of his personality. So Paul was passionate. He was zealous for the law. He wanted to obey the Lord. When he encountered Jesus, God didn't take away the zeal. He just redirected it towards Jesus. And so now he still shows up in Damascus. He still has a a fervor for his mission. But instead of dragging Christians out of houses, he goes to the synagogue to teach other people that Jesus is the Messiah. Paul spends the rest of his life not knocking down doors to arrest people and throw them in prison, but building bridges to Jew and Gentile alike to bring them into a relationship with Jesus. See, Jesus has a plan for us, and his plan is always first that we will tell other people like us about what Jesus has done for us. There is no one more equipped to share the gospel with a self-righteous person than a formerly self-righteous person. Because you get it. You understand the language. You understand the longings. You know where they're coming from. And there's no one more equipped to help someone understand the difference between a legalistic experience of Jesus and a grace-filled experience of Jesus than somebody who's come out of that. And so what does Saul do? He's saved, he encounters Jesus, he immediately goes to the synagogue and says, I was just like all of you. Hebrew of Hebrews, zealous for the law, passionate about it, and yet God saved me and God healed me and God delivered me and he can do the same for you and here's how Jesus is the Messiah and it's the same for you and I. When he saves us from our self-righteousness, it's not so we can pretend that we never were. It's so that we can identify the same things in the hearts of those around us and, and lovingly speak words of truth and life and grace to them. And say, hey, I've, I've sat where you sat. I've been where you've been. I've put those burdens on other people that they can never carry I I, I've been there. It's, it's, it's harmed my marriage because I thought I was better than my spouse. It's harmed my relationship with my parents because I thought they were never serious enough about their faith. It's separated my children from me because I put unrealistic expectations on them and I've not allowed any room for mistakes or grace in our home. And as you begin to tell them, I see where you are. I see what you're going through. And I've been there and I've known that. And now let me tell you about the life that I've found. Let me tell you about grace and peace. Let me tell you about mercy and joy. If we had time today, I could walk you through my decades long experience of learning that Jesus loves me, not because of what I do for him, but because I was created by him, that my identity as his son has nothing to do with my performance and everything to do with his choosing. And I could tell you about the confidence and the peace and the joy that it comes. I could tell you how I finally experienced true and lasting forgiveness, how I've known peace and been able to extend that to others. If we had time, so many of us could tell those stories of our frustration with our own efforts to justify ourselves and our joy at realizing that what we've been striving for, Jesus has already provided. But self-righteous people, they don't just have good news for other self-righteous people. They also have good news for those who think, well, I've never been anything close to self-righteous. When you're a formerly self-righteous person, generally other people look at you as, well, you're someone who's always made the right decisions. You're someone who's had a lot of discipline. You've done the right things. You've been in the right places. You've resisted the wrong things. And, And maybe if their life has been on the opposite end of the spectrum, It's been wild and it's been carefree. They might look at you and think, well, I can never have what you have because I I haven't made all the choices that you've made. And in that space, a a formerly self-righteous person has the greatest news. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter three, verse 10. He says, there is no one righteous, not even one. And so, so when you talk to your coworker, to your neighbor who says, I could never have what you have. I could never live like you live. You're able to tell them you absolutely can. Like My darkness might have been different than your darkness, but without Jesus, we both had our own version of hell that we were stuck in. And yours might have looked this way, but mine looked this way. But both of us need to be set free. Both of us are created to be the sons and daughters of God. Both of us are helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus came for both of us, not because of what we'd done for him, but because we couldn't do anything to achieve the life he designed us to to experience. Formerly self-righteous people have good news of great joy for everyone everywhere. Your job is just to tell your story. And as you tell your story, others are invited into it. This is what Paul does. Paul goes on to become the greatest missionary in church history travels all around the the known world at that time, the centers of power, sharing the gospel first with the Jews, then with the Gentiles, with pagans, with people who have absolutely no concept of the law or who Jesus is. Everywhere he goes, Paul tells his story. This is who I was. This is what Jesus did. And this is who I am. And we're invited into the same experience where we lay down all of our attempts to earn God's favor and his blessing, and we just genuinely receive his grace, his forgiveness, and his mercy. The good news of the gospel is no matter how good you think you are, you'll never be good enough. And also, no matter how bad you think you are, you're never beyond Christ's love and redemption. And so this morning we come to receive that new life. We come to lay down everything we've put our hope and trust in except for Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. We stand with me? I'm gonna pray for us and the band's gonna lead us in a final song. Jesus, we come to you today and we're thankful that you have moved towards us. It wasn't our righteousness that attracted you, but it was our brokenness that compelled you to enter into the world, to offer yourself as a sacrifice and to invite us into new life. And so Jesus, we come this morning to lay down everything we have put our hope in, to lay down everything we think justifies us or makes us worthy, to lay down everything that we think elevates us above others or separates us somehow from the rest of the world. And as we lay those things down, we come only to receive you as our source of grace and new life. We come knowing, Lord, that we have empty hands. We come with nothing that could possibly earn your love and new life. Yet you offer it to us freely. So we receive it and we walk in it. And we ask for the infilling of your spirit to know that we belong to you and to share this good news with others. In Jesus' name.